to others. Um, be faithful to do the homework such that it is, and I'll pass that around right now. And it's like what you do if you haven't ever been in here before is you read um, this, the what we're going to be doing next week is James 1, 1 through 18. So you'll read it every day. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do, fill out anything. You know, all these... I'm just, I never could figure it out. I never knew what the people were asking when I do these, you know, other studies or something, whether you fill out these books. I'm like, what are you trying to figure out here, you know? So I don't make you answer questions or any of that stuff. Just read it and, and record insights, things that God is speaking to you. Because my goal in all of this is to get you to go further still. Just to get you to go, it's not to hear me yap, 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 but it's to grow up in Him. And we all can go further still. None of us are there. Every single one of us is in need to grow. And He wants to meet with you, and He does that personally through His Word. And I don't, I don't know of another shortcut. I don't. I mean, you know, I'm old, and there's not. this isn't a shortcut. It's kind of like um, the story about Billy Graham when um, Jerry Bridges, who wrote, you know, all that Left Behind series, and he came to interview Billy Graham. He wanted to do a, um, a biography on him, and he wanted to know what made his life be so like it was. Because when you go, if y'all ever been up to um, the Cove in Asheville, which is the training center, it's just so amazing and so spirit filled and, and there are pictures that are as big as these walls and they, you don't even know that they're people I mean there's just massive humanity that he's reached and anyway so he wanted Jerry Bridges wanted to get down to it get down to the core of what motivated him how did he do it anyway they were, it, he spent all week in, or month or whatever and nothing was ever came out and finally he said to him you know just uh, they were talking about reading this Bible. And he said, well, what do you do when you miss reading? And he said, well, I don't know that I have. And then, then a little bit later, there in the course of the conversation, he says, well, they were talking about prayer. And he said, well, you know, I pray all the time. Um, Billy Graham said, I pray all the time. He says, you mean you pray, you know, at night, morning, whatever? And he goes, no, I mean, I pray all the time. Like right now, in my spirit, you know, that what I'm saying would be edifying, to be pleasing to the Lord. And he said right then it hit him that he just did what God has told every single one of us to do. And we could, you can be, you want to be all that he's created for you to be. You want that. Because it's a blessing. And it's where you have so much freedom and joy. And it's not you know, entwined in sin or in the world's standards. So anyway, all that to say is I'm, I'm just two things I love. I love I love reading and studying, and I love hiding it in my heart. Because when you hide it in your heart, you have it available to you at any, any time. And I, I can't underplay either one of those because they're, they're both just, they've saved my scrawny neck. Um, okay, then we back up. This isn't a political study or a my opinion study or any of that kind of stuff. Anything you say, really, we back up by Scripture. We, this is our truth. This is our source of truth. I love y'all, but I don't really care about your opinions about, you know, if you want to throw something out, it's, that's not, you know, it's not what we're doing here. Um, no question is silly. 
I don't have all the answers, obviously. Uh, now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part fully, then I shall fully know, even as, even as I am fully known. And so I, I think that, um, you know, we don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. But God, you're not going to put him in a box either. Um, my desire isn't just to fill mouths, you know. I, I, I don't like sit soaking sour. I like go forth. And each one of y'all have a sphere of influence. And it's a big one. And so when you're there, I want you to go forth in, your, in his power for his glory. Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've got. We, are, we have been given a trust and we must be proved faithful. And that's what I want y'all to grasp as well. <clears throat> uh, knowledge merely puffs up. It's not for no, it's not for head. It's not for knowledge sake only. It's it love edifies. So it's knowledge that goes to the heart, that goes to the hands. So it starts head, heart, hands. Just think about you being a conduit of of His mercy. He comes to you, and it goes to you, and it comes out to you, out to others. Because you know we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to to do. Okie dokie. So we're doing an intro to James, and fortunately it's... Oh, well, no, we're not. I just skipped something. Excuse me. I know y'all are going to be so disappointed that I remembered this, but we're going to sing because it, <laughs> it really kind of sat... Here we go. See, it just had one little line. That's why I missed it. And we're going to sing, y'all know, praise the Lord, the Almighty. The Almighty. I love this song. So... And who, whoever has a voice, y'all start it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll wait till everybody gets it. Oh, well, Laura, thank you. <laughs> they were gonna, they were gonna close it if if we hadn't. I meant to do that. Oh dear. And y'all, the reason why I do this for those that are new is because I love the old hymns from the past and there's so much theology in it. And sometimes I just read these things. And another thing that we've been doing at our home, and y'all really need to do this because it is so amazingly peaceful, is we undercurrent uh, play praise and worship music with no words. And it just, it is, it really is so peaceful. And like this morning, it was like I was running around and Bob turned it on on it. Oh, thank you. You know, just thank you. And then you can, in your spirit, you can go through these words that, that they're playing. Like, you know, they were doing some old ones before. It was it was really good. Okay. You ready? Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord, who are all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters he under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been 
granted in what he ordaineth. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord, O oh, that all that is in me adore him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again. Gladly for I we adore him. I love that, y'all. Let the amen sound from his people again. <clears throat> okay, last time we did James, and as if that weren't convicting enough, now we're, no, excuse me, Jonah, now we're on to James. <clears throat> Just get ready to be pricked. I mean, every verse in that book is like, okay, whatever. There are a few books of the Bible that have been more maligned than this little book. Controversy has waged over its authorship, its date, its recipients, its canonicity, and its unity. It is well known that Martin Luther had problems with this book. He called it a right, strawy epistle. But it's only strawy to the degree that it's sticky. It seems there are enough needles in this haystack to prick the conscience of every dull, defeated, and degenerated Christian in the world. Amen to that. Here is a right-stirring epistle which is designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, to rebuke and revive, to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of a true faith that is demonstrated by works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. Christians often make great claims, do they not? But they're often guilty, very guilty, of belying them with their actions. Professing to trust God and to be his people, they cling tightly to the world and its values. In fact, the church quite blends with the world, doesn't it? The church has not gone out into the world, but the world has, has come into the church. And it's a sad state. Possessing all the right answers, they contradict the gospel with the lives that they live bringing no aroma of Christ to their circumstances. They can't see past what they, what they do. Can't, the people can't hear past what they see in, the, in, in, in believers. James confronts this head on. It's not enough merely to talk about the Christian faith. He says we must live it. The proof of the reality of our faith is a changed life. It's a changed life. That's the proof. Genuine faith will inevitably produce good deeds. This is the central theme of the book of James. Around which he supplies practical advice on living the Christian life. Considered one of the general epistles, James, like the epistle Peter, John, and Jude, is an encyclical. It means that it was not addressed to simply one person or to one church. It's addressed or individual churches or persons, but to a larger sphere of believers. 
In fact, it was almost said that some people just preached it. They would just get up and read it. The teaching in these general letters complements the doctrines of Paul, believe it or not. Paul emphasized faith. James stressed obedience for conduct. Peter, hope. John, love. And Jude, purity. So they all took their their different subjects. In discussion of this authorship, the New Testament mentions at least four men named James. One, James, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John, who was a disciple, Mark 119. James, the son of Alphaeus, Mark 318. James, the father of Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, in Luke 616. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, in Galatians 119. It seems clear in most commentaries that the author is James, the half-brother of the Lord, who became the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church. And, and boy, no, no wonder after Jesus showed up to him, I'm sure after he, I can't even imagine growing up with Jesus and not believing the Messianic claims and then Jesus coming back after he had been, after he had been raised from the dead and, and minister to him. Good morning, Chrissy. This conclusion is supported by the authoritative tone of the letter and by marked similarities in Greek between this epistle and the speech in James, which is recorded in Acts 15. Um, Though James was reared in the same home with Jesus, he apparently did not become a believer until after his resurrection, Christ's resurrection. He had not believed the claims that Christ had during his time preceding the resurrection. Scripture states in John, for even his own brothers did not believe him in John 7, 5. That was one of the hardest things. And when his family came to take him away because they thought he was crazy. I mean, that that had to be. I mean, all these things that you just, you know, read over, gloss over, you think that how that had to pierce the Savior's heart. After Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to James. How precious. It's kind of like, you know, and go tell Peter, you know, I'm risen. I mean, he's so preciously sweet to his own. Do you understand? He wants to be so personally sweet to you. And he does that. You see that in Scripture, all through Scripture. We're all wired so differently. And we all have so many different needs and wants. And and he knows that. He created our inmost being. He knows that. And so he meets you where you are. And then he pours into you and he wants you to grow up. Because he wants you to become like him. Because you want to become like him. After Christ rose from the dead, he appears to James. And as a result of this, whom Paul calls so definitely James, the Lord's brother, which I love that, in in Galatians 1.19, became a devoted follower of him who had not clearly understood before. So now he knows and now he goes. What do you do with what you know? It's important. You don't want to sit, soak, and sour it is evident from the record of the book of Acts that, that, that his man soon became, this man soon became an outstanding leader among the Christians in Jerusalem. So much so that some going from there to the churches founded by Paul are said to have come from James in Galatians 2.12. James's encounter with the risen Lord. And y'all, the reason why I read this is because I'm very ADD. And if I don't, 
y'all would regret it because I will get off on a tangent and then I'll then I'll have to reel that rabbit back in and I don't even know where I'm going or where I am supposed to be. So I keep my finger on the line so that I won't, if I get distracted like I'm doing right now and I can go off, then I know where to start. But so that's not because I think I'm, you know, whatever. I mean, most of all, I'm not going to listen to you read, Beth. You don't even read very good. I've missed my place. But anyway, James's encounter with the risen Lord both brought him to saving faith as well as fanned that faith into a blazing flame. That's what you want. When you see your in your children the giftings or a gifting, you want to bend down and blow hard and fan it into flames. It's the same way in your own life. You want to fan those gifts into flames because that's why you're here, for heaven's sakes. It's not just to entertain yourself to death or to run around like a frenzied, crazy person like I do nine times, you know, all the time. But it is to, I mean, it's just to be. And the more I've read this, the more I was going over the old readings from the past, I'm thinking, just be, be with him. Be with him. He calls us. He woos us. It's not about, you can't do anything in your flesh. Period. Nothing eternal. Everything everything eternal is only done through the power of the Spirit indwelling within you. So, you come apart and be with Him. And He puts you all back together again. Uh, James' encounter with the risen Lord both brought him to a saving place as well as fanned his flames into flames, which could not be extinguished. James became a devoted follower of Jesus, whom he had prior not understood, but now he emphatically embraced. He was an outstanding leader among the Christians in Jerusalem. Christ appeared to James and then to all the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul later listed James, Peter, and John as those reputed to be pillars in the church. Galatians 2.9. This is significant and indicates the prominent place James held in the church at Jerusalem. James was cognizant of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, but he concentrated his own efforts in leading his Jewish brothers to Christ. Every one of us has a calling on our lives. And I have a tendency when, oh, somebody's doing that, oh, I think I can do that, or I can do that, or I can do that, and I can't do that. And, I, you know, stick to your calling. And that's what they did. They stuck to their calling. And that's what produces the fruit. Um, anyway, but everyone has a calling in their lives. And it's important that we're faithful to our own particular calling and not to seek to do others, as tempting as that may be. As tempting as it may be. We get worn out when we do when, when we do as well and rob others of the blessings when you try to do somebody else's job just like so let's just say for instance the prayer request I mean you do such a beautiful job and you always have such a beautiful prayer and everything like that and it was I mean like okay okay, I gotta get this down I, gotta, I mean it's like check 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 for a minute you know to try to get you know and so it's like it's such a gift for you and so I appreciate that but anyway it's, this is this one thing but it's like fitting a square peg into a round hole you know, and I'll keep doing it till I, till I get the shavings off so it'll finally kind of stick in there like you know but it's not supposed to be that way again the strongest evidence for the authorship of the epistle of James clearly is his half brother Christ's half brother furthermore 
if I can say these names, Origen, Eusebius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, I don't know, Augustine, I can say, and many other writers support that view. And Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he also as well records that James was martyred in AD 62. He also said the epistle obviously must have been written prior to that date, since no mention is made uh, of the Jerusalem Council, which was in the AD 49, James, <clears throat> which James took so active a role, it's likely that the letter was written between AD 45 and 48, which, interestingly, puts this as one of the earliest writings of the New Testament, which I think is so interesting because he's blending all of Scripture. It's not just about Christianity, but starting from Genesis to Revelation is on obedience. And the obedience is for us. Like, I know a harp and bellow it out so much, but it, we are the ones that lose when we don't. If you follow out any other track, any other thing, it, you will be found wanting and you will be found miserable. Nothing but Christ fully satisfies the soul, period. The others are, per, you know, perhaps for a few moments or a few even decades, unfortunately. But it, it always ends up in the same place. <sighs> Therefore, um, you can hardly be—it can hardly be seen as an argument against Paul's letter to the Romans, which everybody wants to so you know blatantly say, which it was written later. Romans, however, is not a refutation of James. This is apparent from Paul's relationship to James in Acts 21, 17 through 19. And it says in Scripture, When we arrived at Jerusalem, Paul is writing, this is Acts, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, no, he's not writing. must be Luke. Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministries. So James was this pillar that Paul looked up to. As, as well as Paul's recognition of James in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I, also, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Paul writes a little later in Galatians 2, 8 through 10, James, Peter and John, whose those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that, <clears throat> that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. They said, <clears throat> they, all they asked was that we should continue, continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was so eager to do. So it's, it's apparent through the New Testament that Paul thought highly of James. Well, I just read that. Mm, in, very, in every respect. Together, Paul and James gave the full dimension of the faith. I love that. Paul writes, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James writes, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It is difficult for Christians to understand this tension in the apostolic teaching. The message of the whole Bible on faith and works brings clarity to the relationship between Paul and James. Because it's, like I said, from Genesis to Revelation. Both testaments, old and new alike, likewise warn of fake faith, and dubious good works. On this, the Puritan writer Joseph Ellen gives clarity. 
Gosh, I love this. Thank you again, Laura. I can't tell you how many times I look go to this. The new man, this is taken from Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all live, once lived, is the little first part of the verse he puts. The new man <clears throat> takes a new course. His conversation is in heaven. No sooner does Christ call one by effectual grace, but he immediately becomes a follower of Christ. When God has given him a new heart, he henceforth walks in his statues. Though sin may dwell in him, truly a wearisome and unwelcome guest, it has no more dominion over him. He is not a man at church and another at home. He is not a saint on his knees and a cheat in his shop. He turns from all his sins and keeps all of God's statues, though not perfectly, yet sincerely. That's the desire. What is the desire of my heart? Fall, repent, restore. Fall, repent, restore. You know, turn back. And the quicker you turn, the better you are. Those that don't turn quickly, it just, look at David. You can see it in the life. Well written. It gets worse and worse. I can guarantee you a five minutes when, when he was... When he was confronted, he and he realized that it was him. He could not believe that he had gotten that far down. How low he went. Sin will take you deep, baby. Not allowing himself to breach any. Now he delights in the word and sets himself to prayer. He has a good conscience, willing in all things to live honestly without offense towards God and men. It's Hebrews 13, 18. Here you find the unsoundness of many that take themselves for good Christians. They take up the cheap and easy duties of religion, but are not thorough with the work. They are like a cake half-baked. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? God calls them that. You may find them exact in their words, punctual in their dealings, but they do not exercise themselves unto godliness. As for governing their hearts, they are strangers. The heart is deceitful above all cure who can understand it. God searches the heart. Motives are huge to him. We can fool anybody, but you will not fool God. You see them duly at church, but follow them to their families, and you see little but the worldly-minded. Follow them to their closets, and you will find their souls little look after. <clears throat> They seem religious, but do not bridle their tongues, James one twenty six. They may come to the closet, family meaning prayer, and family prayer, but follow them to their shops and you find them in the habit of lying or some fashionable deceit. Just because the world embraces it as good does not mean it's good. The hypocrite is not thorough in obedience. <clears throat> the new man, and you know what's interesting, God is so sweet, because he only brings it to light until you deal with that, and then he brings you with another thing to light until you deal with that, and another, and another, and another. The new man bears no fruit, bears, excuse me, the new man bears fruit unto holiness, and though he make many a blot, many a mess, yet the, yet the law and life of Jesus is what he looks for as his pattern he respects all of God's commandments. He is sensitive in his conscience, even to the little sins and the little duties. In fact, in Proverbs, it says, "Watch your, I don't know where it is, the little foxes in your vineyards, the little foxes in your vineyards, because they can destroy your crop. All these little petty sins, you know, that you think are the foe is not too bad or whatever, they destroy your testimony. They can destroy your testimony. 
Paul writes in Ephesians, as for you, you know what, I forgot to read Colossians. I'm going to do this first because after we read, after we sang the song, I don't know, I'm off my game today. It's raining. Um, Paul tells us in Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other because you've taken off your old practices. Uh, taken off your... Uh, well, uh, let's see. Uh, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self and have put on the new practices... Which, which, which put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all, and is in all, is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Anyway, and then it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are Paul's words in Colossians. But it's, it's, it, it just was brought back to my mind when I was back in Ephesians because he says in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. For it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of the grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast we cannot earn salvation. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, in Paul's writings, yes, we are saved by grace, but our true faith will produce works. 
Paul didn't have a problem with that. The message of Paul and James, therefore, though seemingly paradoxical at first glance, together bear witness to the consistent teaching that God justifies by faith alone, not works, yet true saving faith will persevere in faithful obedience in works which God prepared in advance for all of us to walk in, as Paul stated. Paul also wrote about inner saving faith from God's perspective. John wrote about outward serving faith from man's perspective. The true seed of saving faith is verified in the life of the tangible fruit of serving faith. James' point is that biblical faith is demonstrated by works. Of this, Spurgeon clarifies, which I love Spurgeon too. Y'all, I mean, whatever. They say it's so much better. I mean, why reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, he is. But you know what? Spurgeon, Bobby just read the Lost Books of Spurgeon or something like that. I don't remember. But he dealt so bad with severe depression and anxiety. And and after he read all of these things that happened to him in churches, like he was very much preeminently, you know, so like the the script, the word alone. And, um, and the church was divided that they didn't believe that that was true. And even the closest people, he lost the boat for like like seven to 2,000. That they didn't believe in the inerrancy of the word. And so he, he had struggle after struggle with depression. And, 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 um, and um, I mean, he was the most prolific person I've ever seen. I can't tell you how many books he wrote and all of the... All of the scripture references and stuff, I mean, just on Psalms alone is about that big. I mean, I, that's the only ones I have. But they, but there's, I mean, he was always writing. But anyway, he says, you are of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.23. You are of Christ. You are his by donation for the father gave you to the son. His and his bloody purchase, by his bloody purchase, for he counted down the price for your redemption. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is his by dedication, for you have consecrated yourself to him. His by relation, for you are named by his name. And made one of his brothers and co-heirs work practically to show the world that you were the servant, the friend, the bride of Jesus. When tempted to sin, reply, I cannot do this great wickedness, for I am of Christ. Immortal principles forbid the friend of Christ to sin. When wealth is before you to, to be won by sin, say that you are of Christ and don't touch it. Are you exposed to difficulties and dangers? Stand fast in the evil day, remembering that you are of Christ. Are you placed where others are sitting down idly, doing nothing? Rise up to the work with all your powers. And when the sweat stands upon your brow and you are tempted to loiter and cry, no, I cannot stop for I am of Christ. I'm going to interject something right there. I was listening to Christine Kane, I believe is her name, who was ministers to sex, sex trafficking women that have been in sex trafficking or whatever that have been, you know, abducted and all of this stuff. And I mean, so many quotes by her, but I mean, where she, you know that she's come and told them about Jesus, and and and, the, and one of the girls says, "Well, why didn't you come sooner? If this is true, why didn't you come sooner?" But anyway, she was uh, being interviewed, and she said, "You know, I had um, it was just horrible. She has been inundated. I mean, I can tell you, Satan is very evil, 
And he, I mean, somebody is doing something that's spreading light like that. You can just rest assured she's under enormous attack. And um, she was feeling all these, you know, attacks of the evil one. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of, the, I'm, I'm quitting. Nobody will know. Nobody will, you know, it'll t- I have so much momentum now. Ten years ago, nobody will know. I'm stopping. I'm done. I'm like, you know, how Elijah's like, I'm the only one left. Take me home. I can't do this anymore. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick of it. And and I had kind of gotten in sort of a, a rut like that myself. And I was sitting there listening. And it really piqued my attention. So I was listening more. And she was saying, and I know because and, um, Luke has a friend that, that is a Navy SEAL. And in, when you start to train for Navy SEALs, the whole job is to get you to quit. I mean, everybody is just, that is their goal, is to make you quit. And it is miserable, miserable. I mean, I can't even tell you all the misery they have. But there's this one bell that there's always by there. And all you have to do is just go ahead and ring that bell, and then you can go home. You don't have to do it. You're done. You don't, you don't have to do it. You just give up. And so she was saying, her husband was watching that on, on a, a history channel, and she said, it just hit her. She said, I can't, I can't ring that bell. Yeah, I'm in it. It reminded me of when Jesus looked at Peter and says, are you going to leave me too? Are you leaving me too? It's getting hard. Are you going to stand by me? And Peter goes, beautifully, where where will we go? You have it. You have everything. And this is what I want for us. I don't want to bail because it's hard. And it is hard. Ain't nothing easy about this life. And Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He said, you're going to have the lebus. You're going to have, it's going to be pressed down like a grape. And what comes out when you get pressed down? We're praying that Jesus does. We're praying that. Because that's what you want. Um, Okay. No, I cannot stop for I am of Christ. If I were not purchased by blood, I might be like Issachar, crouching between two burdens. But I am of Christ and cannot loiter. When the siren song of pleasure would tempt you from the path of right, reply, your music cannot charm me. I am of Christ. When the cause of God invites you, give yourself to it. When the poor require you, give your goods and yourself away. For you are of Christ. Pour out your life, like Paul says, I pour out, in Philippians, I pour out my life like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from somebody else's faith. He's pouring it out so somebody else can get it. And he's happy about it. And I'm joyful. Never belie your profession. Always be one of those whose manners are Christian whose speech is like the Nazarene, whose conduct and conversation are so redolent of heaven that all who see you may know that you are the Savior's. Do people recognize you as the Savior's child or brother? Recognize you as his features of love and his countenance of holiness. That's what we're supposed to be because he was the first fruit for us and he came as an example to show us how to live through his power because you can't do it in your flesh. You cannot do it. You will fail every time. 
I am a Roman was proof of integrity in ages past. Just by saying that, I am a Roman was proof of integrity. It carried with it this vast definition. So people wanted to be a Roman citizen. Far more than let it be your proof of holiness, I am of Christ. Isn't that great? He is so good. If I could just write like that, if I could, maybe in heaven, I can write and sing. (laughs) Whatever. Okay, the recipients in James are clearly addressed as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, James 1.1. And the letter has a marked Jewish flavor. The book has a substance and authority of the prophets and the style and beauty of the Psalms. Both the prophets and the Psalms bear witness to a call of a changed behavior of those who faithfully followed God. I'm reminded of Jeremiah 7. I love the way God God speaks to Jeremiah in here. He said, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. And there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is what he says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And by the way, people can say they're a Christian all day long, but it doesn't make them a Christian to say they're a Christian. Even the demons believe that and tremble, it says in Scripture. Or you can say you're a car in the garage. It's not going to make you a car. Just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, trust me, it is to your own harm. And anything, you are going to have a God that you follow. It can be self, it can be anything. But you will follow it, and it is to your own harm if it's not the Lord. Then I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the land I gave your fathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. You're trusting in these words that are worthless. Just because you say something and you don't really live it or mean it, it doesn't make it true. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and they were killing babies on the altar, and allow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable practices? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You're not fooling anybody. I love it when you tell the king of Assyria, I know where you sleep and how you pump up against me. You're not fooling me. And again, he says in Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. I don't care about your silly sacrifice. If you're just doing it as a ritual, why do I care? It means nothing to me. Eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you. And y'all, it's not to be, it's not for your harm. It's for your good. 
but that it will go well for you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. And they went backwards and not forwards. Because like I've told you before, you will never stay right here. You will never stay right here. You're either going this way or you're going this way. But you're not staying, staying static. The psalmist writes, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. I mean, there's, uh, in Psalm 119, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then it says, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the, of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or, I don't know, but this, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He will be be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Not so the wicked. Remember Tisha Kelly's guy? Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Is, anyway, I, his word is hugely important and having it in your heart is so important for your own self. Um... And, of course, our Lord's own words bear witness to a changed behavior from his followers. In Luke 6, 46-49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you, why do you call me that? Why are you wasting your time? Why, what game are you playing in front of your friends or something? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. Our rock is Christ. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who bears, hears my word and does not put them into practice is like a man who built on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Other renditions, and it fell with a great crash. Indeed, from Genesis to Revelations, the Bible emphasizes obedience for our own good. Because we're so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone, you know, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, or take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. Indeed, uh, obedience does not justify us. And save us, rather, obedience demonstrates that we are His and that we believe His ways are the best for our lives. Because when you act on something, when you behold it, if you believe it, you will act on it. If you really believe it, you act on it. And when you see your behavior, that's a good test of what do I trust. We we certainly delve more into... We will certainly delve more into this as we go through James. In fact, I probably went overboard on that. But anyway, I don't, whatever. Back to the overview. James is definitely written to a Jewish excuse me, constituency. Though the letter demonstrates careful Greek diction, it is nonetheless filled with extensive Hebrew symbolism. 
It is likely that Peter wrote to the Jewish Christians scattered to the west and that James addressed the Jewish Christians scattered to the east in Babylon and Mesopotamia. I love that everybody had their little area. The book of James is as much a lecture as it is a letter. Though it opens with customary salutation of an epistle, it lacks personal references that were so common in Paul's letters and and others, and it has no concluding benediction either. This so-called epistle was obviously prepared for public reading as a sermon to the congregations addressed. The tone is clearly authoritative, but not autocratic. James includes, listen to this, included 54 imperatives in the 108 verses. 54 an average of one call for action in every other verse. That is why it so easily pierces the conscience and the hearts of the readers. Most scholars suggest that this book, like I said, was written shortly before James's martyrdom in 62. There are some, however, who place a time of the writing close to the Jerusalem Council in 46. Nevertheless, it seems like the book of James was one of the first New Testament books written. Many have supposed it was the earliest New Testament book designed to bridge the gulf between the old and the new dispensations, which I think is interesting. And so to prepare the way for Paul's gospel, which was to follow. Paul alone, Paul alone speaks of justification from all things rather than mere forgiveness, as precious as that is. The book of James is simple, yet organized in logical treaties on the ethical aspects of the Christian life. This fact, along with the realization that the book is largely composed of general exhortations and admonitions, has led some to call it a New Testament counterpart to the Proverbs. So it's got, you know, you don't have Proverbs, it has all these different things, but that's sort of like... People feel like it, James. The major theme of the book is the appeal to believers that is necessary to demonstrate inward faith by outward actions. In James one twenty two, faith that is not demonstrated will accomplish nothing. As James says, and it is declared dead. The alleged lack of unity in James has been a prevalent complaint. Some contend the book bears a loose format like that of Hebrew wisdom literature, like we just said, of the Proverbs. But however, there's little need for confusion. The epistle demonstrates a marked unity and a clear goal. The purpose of his letter is to exhort the early believers to Christian maturity and to holiness in life. This letter deals more with the practice of Christian faith than with its precepts. James told his readers how to achieve spiritual maturity through a confident stand, compassionate service, careful speech, contrite submission, and concerned sharing. He dealt with every area of a Christian's life. James did. What he is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and what he has. With his somewhat stern teaching on practical holiness, James showed how Christian faith and Christian love should be expressed in a variety of actual situations. This seemingly unrelated parts of the book can be harmonized in light of this unified theme. It's not like the pearls were just rolling around in a box. He says it was to produce a necklace of priceless beauty. It's basically what he's doing. The theme of the epistle is a living faith. No one wants a dead faith. Why would you want a dead faith? A faith that is evidenced by righteous living and godly behavior. That's why I just find it so confusing. I don't understand how, why people 
want to call themselves Christian. They do so much harm to the body, but they don't really want to be a Christian. They just call themselves Christians, and they don't live like it at all. Why bother? I don't understand that. Throughout the epistle, we will recognize a very close connection between its instruction and that given in Matthew chapters 5 and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, only able to do by the Holy Spirit living within us. It deals with deep and obtruse doctrinal, doctrinal themes rather than with practical Christian ethics. It is indeed a demonstration of a new creation, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new one. He's not, he's going to, he is new. The old is gone, the new has come. Perfect? No. But aiming towards perfection with being conformed to the image, kind of like Enoch. And as he takes his which means a narrowing, and as, as we go through life, you know, he's per, he's getting rid of all the peripheral. Some of it, it when we went to a campus crusade for Christ thing when I was younger than y'all. I mean, I was just barely 22, I was, you know, and, and, and he was, and I still remember, he said, you know, you know you're far along in your Christian walk when he is taking out the good for the better, you know. But at first, when he starts cutting off all these things, there's a lot to cut off, right? It's a whole lot, you know. But your 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 you know, your your life is because is narrowing, narrowing, narrowing to Jesus, just like Enoch, come on and be with me, Lord. We are continually renewing our gaze on Jesus Christ. Then you think about this, y'all. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews twelve, one through three, therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. All these people that have gone before you, all the people in Hebrews 11 of the Hall of Fame, all of these people that have, these great Christian, Billy Graham, all these people that have gone before you, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, all the peripheral things that hinders. Let us throw everything that hinders and let us, oh my gosh, my mind is not working today. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. <laughs> and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Not yours for me, but for me. The race marked out for me. Us always, ever, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and ring the bell. Don't ring the bell. Where would we go? You have the answer to all of life, Lord. Where would we go? This is more than the work of a moment. (laughs) When Paul stated, I live by faith in the Son of God, he was speaking of a lifestyle. This is not just a fleeting thought or a brief prayer. This was his whole life. As he said, I consider my life nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he says, I want to know Christ. That's what your prayer should be this year. I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, forget what's behind. You can't change yesterday. Forget it. Strain toward what is ahead. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature, Paul says, should take such a view of things. But own something you think differently, God too will make that clear to you. Only live up to what you have already attained. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is a, don't keep, don't go backwards. Keep going. Start where you are. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, this this is his push, push for us. Why did I say any of that? I have no idea. And I didn't. I moved my finger. <laughs> that is always trouble. Okay, let's see. Um, Paul tells us in Galatians two twenty, I have been crucified with Christ. So he thought of himself as dead. Paul dead. Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You want me to sing it to you? I've been crucified with Christ. I could never memorize this one, so I had to put it to song. That will help you memorize. I'm not kidding. It's ridiculous. But anyway, um, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On this verse, the Bible Knowledge Commentary states, The self-righteous, self-centered Saul died. Further death. With Christ ended Paul's enthronement of self. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, I mean, he was the elite. He was the Navy SEAL of his day. I mean, he had every credential for a Jew. Every credential. And he he stated all that in Philippians. He yielded the throne of his life to another, to Christ. But it was not in his own strength that Paul was able to live the Christian life. The living Christ himself took up his abode in Paul's heart. Christ lives in me. Yet Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life, unfortunately. It is a matter of living the new life by faith in the Son of God. Faith is the what is the, I hope I can get this across, but it is the motivator of obedience. It is then not faith and not works or legal obedience that releases divine power to live a Christian life. This faith, stated Paul, builds on the sacrifice of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In essence, Paul affirmed, if he loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life in me. If he loved me enough to save me, he loved me enough to show me how to live. We cannot commune with Christ too closely, nor can we exert too much energy in pursuing such communion. If we make nearness to him our aim, we will find ourselves rewarded a hundredfold beyond our efforts. It is the Spirit's role to show us the beauty of Jesus. That's the truth. Chiefly through ordinary means such as scripture reading, prayer, observing the sacraments, community, and private and public worship. That Jesus is the greatest beauty of all. The reason for rotten fruit in our lives, the reason why we stay stuck on certain sins for years, is that we spend too much effort trying to be like Jesus relative to the investment we make in simply being with him. Sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Have y'all ever tried to be quiet and still before the Lord? I mean, without, without your mind going, to, I gotta pick up the kids. I've gotta, I've gotta make the grocery list. I've gotta go to Target. I've got, you know, it's like, <laughs> and then start, start over again. It is quite hard. 
it's quite hard to meditate on his precepts and, and, to, and to be still and quiet before him. It's so hard that I think we often miss his still small voice. I know I do. If we want to become like Jesus, we ha- have to stop trying to be like him and start responding to his generous, kind invitation to come be with him. Come to me, he says. All you who are weary, <laughs> I bet every one of us could raise our hand. Burden, both hands, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. I want to give you rest, Beth. You flit around like a knucklehead. Jesus is the beauty who kisses the beast in us. He is. And when he kisses us, we become beautiful. He doesn't want to be beautiful. If we are asking, how do we live by the Spirit? The answer is, whatever moves you towards Jesus. What moves you towards him? What moves you towards him? Some people love to just sit out in nature, in the the water. I mean, everything points to his majesty. Everything does. He's amazing. For some, the Spirit convicts. For others, the Spirit comforts, disciplines, empowers, weakens, etc. In order to get all of us to Jesus, who is the ultimate destination. Everything the Spirit does points to the beauty of God, points to the beauty of Jesus. The more you know Him, the more you will love Him. And the more you love him, the more you will want to serve him and simply be with him. John says in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Puritan Richard Sibbs says, do we entertain Christ to our loss? (laughs) Does he come empty? No, he comes with all grace. His goodness is a commutative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures, to enrich the heart with all grace and strength to bear all afflictions. Look what he did. He gives us his power. We can't do it. I I would have fled that cross. But he can. He said, he never said we could, but he said he would. To encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit, he comes indeed to make our hearts as it were, a heaven. Who doesn't want their heart, as it were, to be a heaven? I mean, you know, all that inside, like like James says in him, you, know, you, you want what you want, you can't have it. And then, you know, inside of you, you're having this battle. It's like, I don't want that. I want the peace that passes understanding to guard my heart in Christ Jesus. James is saying that it is not by works which saves us, but works which prove us. It just shows you. You can't be a fruit inspector for anybody's life. It shows you. In fact, really, the only person that you need to be tending to is right here in your chair. But you're not going to change anybody's heart. Only God does that. Only God does that. James is saying, it's not by works which says, but works which prove us. We are His And that the Holy Spirit is within us, working through us by faith to bring much glory to him, equipping us for every good work. Our prayer should be, Lord, how can my life bring you the most glory? Um, The last thing. Oh, 
Okay, good. Last thing on um, I'm going to read is I thought this was so good. I mean, it's like God is so sweet. I'm not kidding you. He just gives me these things right when I'm we're doing. You know, it fits so perfectly with. Well, I think it does anyway. Ministers to me, and you know, sorry, y'all are having to <laughs> be subjected to it. Okay, <clears throat> let's see. This is. Um, Baxter, and I love him too. If you have sincerely given yourself up to God, well, first of all, he says in Romans 6.22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. If you have sincere, we have a good master, but sin is not a good master. Satan is not a good master. He lures and entices and all of that, and he goes, then he fills you with shame. Just, you know, comes back at you. If you have sincerely given yourself up to God and consented to his covenant, show it by turning the face of your endeavors and conversations quite another way. Seek heaven more fervently and diligently than you ever sought the world. Because it matters how you live your life now. I am telling you this, girls. It matters very greatly how you live your life right now. Or fleshly pleasures. Holiness consists not in mere forbearance of a sensual life, but principally in living unto God. Because you've seen some like people that are a part of God, but they're just trying to rigidly check off everything to be this perfect Christian or whatever. Without solves the power of the Spirit. A works-oriented type person. And they lack the peace and the joy and all the things that God gives us. The principle of heart of holiness is within and consists in the love of God, his word, his ways, his servants, his honor, and his interest in the world. It consists in the soul's delight in God and the ways of God. It is because you believe it to be true. You believe it, what he says, to be true. You will act on it. It is inclined towards him and seeks after him to please him. It hates to offend him. The expression of it in our lives, and sometimes, y'all, it's just sickening how often I do the same thing over and over again. The wrong, the same wrong thing. <laughs> it's like, seriously, Beth, what is the deal? It's like worse than a two-year-old, you know? I can see putting all those books in the hallway. <laughs> I mean, look like fun. Make a library in the hallway. Why not? Yeah, whatever. It hates to offend him. The expression of it in our lives consists in a constant, diligent exercise of the internal life according to the direction of the Word of God, according to the direction of the Word of God. That's why you see so many, even if they're baby Christians, they don't know the Word. They don't know the Word. Read it, and don't expect anybody else to teach it to you. It's kind of like, like when you're raising kids. Don't expect anybody else to be teaching them about God. You do it. They're under your roof. They're your children. It's, it, it's important that we take responsibility because we are. Fire will test the quality of each man's work. Christians, you don't want that. It's not out of fear. It's, it's out, of, out of the fact that you know it's the best. I start preaching, and I, I mean, it's, it's good. It's not bad. If you are a believer and have subjected yourself to God as your absolute sovereign king and judge, it will then be your work to obey and please him as a child, his father, or a servant, his master. 
Do you think that God will have servants and have nothing for them to do? Will one of you commend or reward your servant for doing nothing? And take it at the year's end for a satisfactory answer or account? If he might say, say, I have done no harm to you. I didn't do you any harm. God calls you not only to do no harm, but to love and serve him with all your heart and soul and might. If you have a better master than you had before, you should do more work than you did before. Will you not serve God more zealously than you, than you serve the devil? Will you not labor harder to save your souls than you did to damn them? Hmm. Will you not be more zealous in good than you were in evil? If you are true believers, you have now laid up your hope in heaven. Seek it. As whirlings set themselves to seek the world. Father, I just thank you that you aren't ambiguous and that you do make everything clear and that you do love us and delight in us and rejoice over us and sit with singing. Lord, I, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we will rest secure in you today and in, in your lap, Lord, and, and just, as you said, the one the Lord lo- loves rests between his shoulders, that we would feel our head and your chest and, and your strong heart beating as if it did. I don't know. But it's comforting to know, Lord, that you care for us as great as you are and as little as we are. And I, and I thank you for that. I pray, Father, we would, we would love you more through this study and get to know you even better. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It was um, the reason why this was written, this song was written, and I'm going to read it to you, just describes what this um, man went down, Horatio Spafford, went through prior to writing it as well with my soul. When the great Chicago fire, and think about all these, when you hear all the different litany of things that happened to him, when the great Chicago fire consumed the Windy City in 1871, Horatio Spafford, an attorney heavily invested in real estate, lost a fortune. About the time his only son, forced succumbed to scarlet fever. He drowned his grief in work, pouring himself into rebuilding the city and assisting hundreds of thousands that had been left homeless. In November of 1873, he decided to take his wife and, do- and daughters to Europe. Horatio was close to Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey, and he wanted to visit their evangelistic meetings in England and enjoy a vacation. When an urgent matter detained Horatio in New York, he decided to send his wife Anna and their four daughters, Maggie, Tanetta, Anna, and Bessie, on ahead. As he saw them settled into a cabin aboard the luxurious French liner Villa de Havre, an unease filled his mind, and he moved them to a room closer to the bow of the ship. Then he said goodbye, promising to join him soon. During the small hours of November the 22nd, 1873, as the Ville de Havre, or whatever, glided over smooth seas, the passengers were jolted from their bunks. The ship had collided with an iron sailing vessel, and the water poured in like the Niagara. The Ville de Havre tilted dangerously. Screams, prayers, oaths emerged from the nightmare of unmeasured terror. Passengers clung to post, tumbled through darkness, and were swept away by powerful curtain, currents of icy ocean. Loved ones fell from each other's grasp and disappeared into foaming blackness. Within two hours, the ship had vanished beneath the waters. The 226 fatalities included Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie. Mrs. Spafford was nearly unconscious, clinging to her piece of wreckage. When the 47 survivors landed in Wales, 
she cabled her husband, saved alone. Horatio immediately booked passage to join his wife. En route on a cold December night, the captain called him aside and he says, I believe we're now passing over the place where this went down. Spafford went to his cabin but found it hard to sleep. And so he gets up and he writes, It is well with my soul. Y'all, what matters really in life, what matters really in life is the, is, is your soul, is it well with your soul? It is well for us to be reminded that God has never promised us that we would be carried to heaven on a bed of down. Rather, Scripture promises quite the opposite. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Psalm 34, 18 and 19. I have told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. I'm telling you this so you may have peace. So it's possible throughout all of these horrific circumstances to maintain tranquil, perfect peace. But take heart. I have overcome the world, he says. In Acts, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples, then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Second Corinthians said, Paul's writing, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we're suffering in the province of Asia. Don't be fooled about this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give us thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Who, then, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? It is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul said, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who has ears, let him hear of his love for you. For you and 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 even me, shocking as that can be. Lean hard upon me, Frances Roberts says. And she writes as if she's from God's perspective. She's awesome. She's, I don't know, it's 100 years old. I have no idea where I got it from some lady. Lean hard upon me, for I bring you through to new victories, and restoration shall follow what seems to be a wind of destruction. Have you ever been in a wind of destruction like Job? And then they were, and while they were still speaking, they came in. And while they were still speaking, they came in. And while they were still telling something bad, something bad, something bad, something bad, it's like, stop. This has got to stop. He says, he says, of, she says, restoration shall follow what seems now to be a wind of destruction. Hold fast 
to my hand and rest in my love. For of this you may be very certain. My love is unaltered. Yes, I have you in my own intensive care. Where are you when you're, you've got ten, three children? Where are you when the sickest one is the sickest? Right by his side, her side, whatever. Not that you don't love the other ones just as much. When you're in these situations, he says, I am in, you're, you're in my intensive care. My concern for you is deeper than when things are normal. When, whatever that means. Draw upon the resources of my grace, and so shall you be equipped to communicate peace and confidence to your dear ones. Heaven rejoices when you go through trials with a singing spirit. Sis all. Your heart's fa- heart, excuse me, your father's heart is cheered when you endure the test and do not question his mercy. The why, the why, the why. Be like a beacon light. His own glorious radiance shall shine through you, and Christ himself will be revealed. Indeed, he takes us, it says in Psalms, from strength to strength as we pass through our valley of Bacchus, our valley of tears. And this is the whole way we've talked about it before, a Christian walk is, any walk is. You're going up, you know, you're on the mountaintop, then whoop, you start going down, then you're in the valley, and then you start going up. I mean, it's never this way. It never just stays this way, and neither do you. You're either going up towards him or you're going down. We're not static. Okay, you already said that about passing the notebook around. If you haven't signed that, it's not a notebook, but just put your name, address, and husband's name and all that down if you have already signed. If you have, just sign your names. If your email's changed or whatever. So I can get it on the prayer request list. Sometime we're going to get this worked out. I don't know. Okay, the prayer notebook. Since um, let's just do it on this because she's um, Jerry Lynn is um, mother had to go to the hospital last night. She's got pneumonia. So anyway, y'all be praying for her. And uh, there's somebody else that was. Is it Tommy? It's. Did John get the, I mean, was it Don or Oh, no. Oh, I, I don't know. No, this is her mama. It's Linda it's, Turner. Linda Turner is her mother. Okay. Okay. Um, the beauty, y'all, of teaching a small book of the Bible is that we have the luxury of the time to read the scripture that we're studying before we begin the session. Oh, and if you don't have any homework, such that it is, um, you know, give that. Just, just read it. it. You just read it every day that week of that um, section of scripture, um, and then we just are just kind of being prepared for what we're going to be studying. And this week we're doing James one one through eighteen. So I'm going to read it first, and then um, we can get into it. James and try to y'all just close your eyes and just listen. I love, I love just the pure, unadulterated word of God. And so many, you know, so many times we get so distracted by, oh, read this, read this, read this, and you spend, you know, an hour in devotional books and, you know, five seconds in the real, the word, which gives life. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hmm. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one in, in, who is rich should take pride in the low position, in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of all he created. The letter of James begins with the conventional opening the name of the writer, the people to whom the letter was addressed, and the word of greeting. James appears to be content with this simple introduction. If we are correct in attributing the writing to James, the, the epistle James to James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, in which he speaks of himself, he becomes humble. It becomes very humble, <clears throat> more striking and humbly endearing. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer has, has thus introduced himself most modestly. He doesn't claim any fame of being Jesus' half-brother or he, at this point, was a, was a high leader in the church. He did not indicate his status in the church or that he was the Lord's brother. God loves the humble in heart. I love that. All of you, he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, 5, 5 through 7, all of you clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. When, when he lifts you up, it's, it's a lifting up indeed. Spurgeon says, all of God's resources will be made available to the soul that is humble enough to be able to receive them without growing proud because of it. I can't read that without thinking about Billy Graham and how many people that he ministered to and how humble he was. He would just always, if anybody come to him with any kind of affirmation, he was just the gospel, I'm, teach, I'm just teaching the gospel. I'm doing what, he just did what, every, what God calls every single one of us to do. Be in the word, pray, and share. Be in the word, pray, and share. It's just about as simple as that walk in a manner worthy of his gospel without growing proud because of it. When a man is sincerely humble and never tries to take credit for or the price, there's scarcely any limit to what God will do for him. Most people cannot handle it because of pride. It's an insidious monster. And it even, you can see it in, in church history how it just it gets in and, just, and it takes people down. 
one after one after one after one. What do you, the uh, one good verse to memorize is, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, why do you boast? You have nothing you can claim that you broke, that you had anything to do with. <laughs> God will do for him. Humility makes us ready to be blessed by the God of all grace and equips us to deal efficiently with our fellows. True humility is a flower that will adorn any garden. This is the sauce that will season every dish of life and improve in every case, whether in prayer or praise, whether in work or suffering. The genuine salt of humility cannot be used in excess. Once James had known Christ after the flesh, but now he knows him totally in a different light. He knew him as his brother, but now he knows him totally differently. He now honors him as Lord and Messiah and links his name with the God with that of God the Father. Whatever doubts James may have entertained concerning the claims of Christ in the days of his flesh, they're now gone. All doubts had disappeared by the resurrection of the one with whom he has sustained so intimate a relationship in Nazareth. Also, the lack of title suggests that he was well-known and had had the authority to send the letter of this kind. So he wasn't just writing it, some, some incognito person writing and saying, be joyful in all your trials. He had behind him some credentials. James describes himself simply as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He considered himself a bond slave, doulos. He was the property of God, and by the way, so are we. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Obviously, James recognized the deity of Christ by placing him co-equal with God. Furthermore, James used his full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus meaning Savior. Christ is the Greek for Messiah, the anointed, the eternal God, became the Savior, Jesus, and rose again as everlasting sovereign Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This letter is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James was writing to the Jews dispersed from their homeland, and that was a hardship for them. They were away from the temple. They were away from what they knew to be everything they knew. The technical term used is scattered, which is diaspora, diaspora, referring to the Jews who were scattered among the Gentiles, even as their ancestors had been in the days of captivity. As a Jew himself, but a Jew who knew the Lord in the fullness of resurrection life, James now speaks to all his brethren. While, while Paul was called to the Gentiles, James was called to the Jews and Peter <clears throat> and to all of these brothers in Israel whose fathers had been for centuries dispersed among the nations and who through themselves and through them were scattered far and wide. Though the 12 tribes, and I love this about God, though the 12 tribes of Israel are scattered, they're never lost. They're never lost. God never loses his own. Jesus tells us in John, my sheep, that's what's so amazing about the Jews, quite frankly. But anyway, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, it has nothing to do about us. We can't hold on tight enough. We are in his grip. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, he says in John 10, 27 through 30. Well, the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned in Revelation two times. Well, for, for sure, and probably maybe more than that. But anyway, um, 
and again listed in the close biblical history of in Revelations. Judah, Reuben, Simeon. I was going to try to memorize. I had memorized them one time, but I had to do it in a different order that these people did it. But anyway, they're mentioned in Revelation 7, 5 through 8, and 21, 12. And he says, the angel says, Then I heard to, uh, to John, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. This is in Revelations. There were 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. These are sealed. They were coming in. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12. Gad, 12. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Anyway, he goes through and he mentions every single one of them, 12,000 from each of these tribes. I have not forgotten them. It's like when Elijah was saying, I'm the only one left. No, Elijah, you're not the only one left. You just don't know about it. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall fully know fully, be known fully, as even as we are fully known. We don't know it all, and we will not know it all. So don't think you know it all, and you cannot put him in a box. In Revelation 21, 12, it said it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels of the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Bless you. No, indeed, thankfully, God never forgets his own. The prophet Isaiah pens what God speaks. Can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she gave birth to? Though she may forget, I won't forget you. I'll never forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are ever before me. In order to attain Christian maturity and holy conduct, it is essential for us to have a firm foundation in God's word, as well as a resolute, made-up mindset, like we talked before, not a vacillation of, oh, I'm going to do this, no, I'm going to not, blah, 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 because if you do that, you're never going to go that way. You have to have a firm res- resolution mindset, like Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem on his way to the cross. He was resolute. You, that you want to stand firm in God's will, mature and fully assured, as, Colossi- as Epaphras says to the church at Colossae. You want to stand firm. You want your children to stand firm because the safest place in the world for you to be is in the center of God's will, mature and fully assured. Um, he dared not be pushed down. Uh, the, the Christian must have the, the God's word and the made-up mindset. The believer must be able to stand with confidence, not in himself, but in the all-powerful powerful strength of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He dared not be pushed down by trials or lulled by temptations. Trials from without and temptations from within are no match for a Christian who stands in the word of truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no match for it. You are stronger than Satan with Christ in you and the power of him. But you yourself are not. (laughs) Trust me. Blessed is the man, someone said, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, but his leaves does not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish Paul also tells us, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. 
Stand firm and hold on to these. These are truths. These are what you base your faith on, your, your works on, your everything on. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I'm just telling you this, not even telling you what, this is what the scripture is saying, but I, I've lived this too, and I know it to be true. It's like I'm not doing this just because I'm, I think I'm, you know, whatever, for any other reason. But I know it's true, and I know it helps, and I know it works. Not it works, it's, it works is just such a word, real, it's a blessing. It's, it's a blessing, and it is such a disaster when it's missed. It's a wasted life. And no one I know wants to waste their life. Not a person. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful and he will not he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Like I've told y'all before, when my kids were little, I just prayed that God would show them the door of escape. And if they saw it and they didn't go through it, to pull them by the hair through it. I didn't really care how they got through it. I wanted them through it. And he will stand, the Lord says, because he is faithful and able to make them stand. Next, in verses 2 through 4, James not only gives us an admonition to patience and perseverance in adversity, <clears throat> but he also calls us further still to joy. It's not like, okay, I'm going to grip my teeth and get through this. But he's saying he wants us to go further still to joy, count it all joy. This links very intimately with what Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I love the stand. We don't cower, we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Our trials should be faced with an attitude of joy. Boy, it's convicting, isn't it? They should not, and, and if, we, if we just kind of go back to the Jonah <clears throat> and his response to being used so greatly, and the whining and the complaining and the just anger that he had because he wasn't happy with what he wanted. He missed God's best. Not that he wasn't saved, but that he missed what the abundant life now is available to each one of us, as well as in heaven. God came. He says, I came to give you life and give it to the full. Don't be all wrapped again in all these things that are going to take you down like the Titanic. They should be seen. Um, they should not be seen as a punishment, a curse, or a calamity, but something that must prompt rejoicing. Furthermore, they should produce pure joy. Quite literally, the word means all joy, that is full or unmixed, not just some joy, coupled with much grief. Though James' command was direct and forceful, he did not preach at his audience. He identified with them. He addressed them warmly as my brothers. This mode of address is characteristic of the epistle. He used this familiar form no less than 15 times. James' direct commands are coupled with deep compassion. 
He wasn't like tritely saying, put on your big girl britches and deal with it. <coughs> That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he saying it doesn't hurt. The pain is pain. It hurts. It's also important to know that James did not say that a believer should be joyous for the trial, but in the trial. Not for it. It's not a good thing that a bazillion things are happening in everybody's life. I can say that are not good. <clears throat> but what it is doing in your life is for good. Our joy comes not in our tribulations and trials themselves. Rather, it is what the tribulations and trials are producing and bringing about in us and those that are around us as they see this. It is a deep trust in the Lord and his handling of our lives. You know, it, you know because we want to take it back. We want to take the reins back. Who's on the throne of your life? You know, most of the time, oh, the Lord is. Well, then I'll start going, take it back, take the control back. But it's a deep trust that he knows best. And sometimes that's hard to, to take. Like, boy, I could think, I could write it out better than that. He's going, no, I don't think you can. You know, <clears throat> he knows what is best for us as well as a strong confidence in him that all things allowed are for our ultimate good and his glory, never one surpassing the other. Our ultimate good in his glory. Trials develop in us a perseverance and character, making us mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do any of y'all feel like you're lacking anything? Do you have it where you feel you're full and complete, not lacking anything? No longer shallow house. Rather deep, rich, and full of joy and hope, overflowing with something of value to give to others. And that, of course, is Jesus. Furthermore, our tribulations and trials are what God uses to conform us into the image of his Son. That is his MO. That is what he's about. Therefore, they are always working for our good. He wants us to be like the Savior. Never for our destruction. It is sin it is sin. Listen to this, y'all. It is sin that causes death and destruction. It is always sin that causes death and destruction. Jesus came to give life and give it to it to the full. Give it to it to us to it to the full. Peter tells us, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. <laughs> when he suffered, he made no threats. What did he do then? Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. <clears throat> we, of course, have the promise of Romans 8, 28, and 29 as well, which Paul states, God is working all things for our good, conforming us into the image of his Son. Those predestined, calls, justifies, and glorifies. He predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies. And we know, he says, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers.
And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He does it all. He does it all. Christians can face trials with joy because they are rich advantages from these testings, which are clearly only received through them. That is the truth. When things are when things are going swimmingly smooth, so are we. <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, they don't get anything. But then one thing happens is like, wah, wah, wah. Lord, where are you? What have you done? What, why is this happening? Why is this going on like this? You know, I just I remember. I mean, my my favorite line. I guess I you know I've got many. I guess in Joe, but one of them. When his friends had come and did the right thing by just sitting and crying with him and not saying a word, it said they couldn't speak because they saw how great his suffering was. They saw how great. And sometimes in life, don't you just feel how great your suffering is? It's like, I can't take another breath, Lord. I can't lift my head up, Lord, because I know better. You know, I think one of the things that has been such a blessing in my life is just pouring out before him. Just pouring out. He knows what's in your heart anyway. There's no, I mean, it's no feigned relationship. It's like, I, I hate this, Lord. I can't do this. You know, I can't, I can't do so-and-so or whatever. And, and then he taught me, no, but you can do it for me. So I look in people's face, and I don't see that person. I see him. And so I, I do it for him. I live for him. It makes a lot of difference sometimes when you're in situations that have been really, really hurtful or hard. And that's why we need to go to him first. I'm Amen. 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 And so many times, too, when you, when you say things like that to people, maybe you're trying to find somebody on your side. To 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 you know I know I am like oh you're okay you didn't you know you 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 don't deserve that you know all of that kind of stuff it's like Lord and when He's trying to show something in your heart it's not a pretty sight or what He's trying to maybe take out and besides that what do you leave in the ears of those you've told it to does it lift them up does it edify does it bring them up. Does it make the person you're talking about or who, whatever the situation you're talking about, you know, worse, you know, because you're trying to get them to, you know, say, oh, you're so not bad as you think you are or whatever, you know, it's anyway, but yes, 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 always go to him first, always. I had a, and I have a place where you can go, even if it's in your car, where you, you know what I'm saying? Beth Moore used to say she'd go to her car. And turn, you know, lock it. <laughs> and no matter how many people were banging on the door, she wouldn't come to it. <laughs> well, you know, but there are all kinds of. Pl- I mean, I don't even know how that how people in China do it when they have, <clears throat> you know, four generations living under one roof. Where do they go to breathe? I mean, you know, they just I guess you get out. But they find a tree. You find something, you know, just to be alone with the Lord, and that's huge. That's and it's hard. Sometimes I have to be still, and, I, and then I, things come in my mind, like, you know, Target run, grocery day, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, they get, you know, like, like what time is it? What, you know, and put him first, too. And, you know, and it's, it's amazing how he feels you, isn't it? 
It's amazing. It's amazing what he does in those times. Uh, this is a little poem, which I think is kind of cool. It's talking about a piece of gold. It says, out from the mine and of the darkness, mine, M-I-N-E, and darkness, out from the damp and the mold, out from the fiery furnace cometh each grain of gold, crushed into atoms and leveled down to the humblest dust, with never a heart to pity, with never a hand to trust. Molten and hammered and beaten, seemeth it ne'er to be done. Oh, for such a fiery trial, what hath that poor gold done? Oh, twere mercy to leave it down in the damp and the mold. If this is the glory of living, then better to be dross than gold. Under the press and the roller, into the jaws of the mint, stamped with the emblem of freedom, with never a flaw or a dent. Oh, what a joy the refining out of the damp and the mold, and stamped with a glorious image. Oh, what a beautiful coin of gold. That's what he's doing to each one of us. He's getting us out of that damp, moldy place of sin and destruction. And he's making us into a beautiful gold coin for his glory. You can't do it. He never said you could do it. But he can do it. He always said he would and wants to. Without this approved standard of faith, trials would not yield perseverance. There would be only ashes would be burned up true faith like pure gold endures true faith endures no matter how hot the fire like we've talked about before and everybody was turning from jesus and, and the like jane said she thought it was the saddest it is some of the saddest words in the bible he turns to peter and says are you going to leave me too is everybody going you know you just feel that Huh, you're going to leave me too. And Peter says, well, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? No matter how hard the fire, you stay with it. The true faith, therefore, develops or more literally works perseverance or staying power. Perseverance is only the beginning of the benefits. See, we can't just do it just to, to be, you know, it's kind of like dieting. You say, oh, I'm not going to have another cookie in my whole life. Well, that's I mean, how are you going to, you know what I'm saying? Or I'm never going to have another peanut m M&M, Or I'm going to run three miles every single day. Or, you know what I mean? It's like all these ridiculous things that, uh, that last maybe two seconds, you know. What it, you, and you know that there's advantage to all this. But perseverance is only the beginning of the benefits that this comes. There are more advantages to trials. Perseverance must finish its work. Just as tested and true faith works to produce perseverance, so perseverance must be allowed to continue its perfect or finished work to produce the ultimate byproducts of maturity and spiritual fulfillment. This, of course, is the lofty goal that serves as the epistle's unifying theme. James' main point was to show how to achieve spiritual maturity. Two words describe the goal, mature and complete. Mature and complete. Doesn't it just sound so wonderful to be mature and complete? Trials are therefore no evidence of God's displeasure. God disciplines those he loves to talk. Bless you. In Hebrews 12, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. 
Um, trials are therefore no evidence of his displeasure when, he, when, when his people are called upon to pass through great trials and temptations. Just ask blameless Job. If someone professes to have faith in the Lord, he can depend upon it that that profession will be put to test sooner or later. You can just count on it because your faith must be proven. All too often, we so frequently lose courage and become despondent in the hour of temptation or trial instead of realizing that it is the very time when we should look up into the Father's face with great confidence, knowing that he is working out some purpose in us that could not be wrought out in any other way. It could not be done in any other way. He doesn't do it, though. Try to figure out the hardest way to do it. He does it the easiest way to bring about the results he desires. His no's are always for our greater yes. Always for our greater yes. Do not think when we are suffering in the fiery furnace that he does not care. Do not think that he sits lofty in the heavenlies paying us no mind. Our master knows the intensity of the heat and the exact longevity of all our trials and tribulations designed to bring about his divine purposes of unmingled good and blessedness for every heir of mercy. Our Savior suffered with a magnitude we know nothing of so that heaven's doors would be open to us. If on our way to our true home we undergo the arrows of Satan's quiver, take heart, my friend, and do not lose your hope or joy. What does unmingled love mean? Excuse me. And nothing that's in there. Nothing that's dross in there. Okay. Pure. Pure. Just pure. Many have traversed the same path and received the warmest of welcomes home. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. And that's the truth. It's like you think, I'll never sing again. I'll never, I'll never smile again. And then, whammo. <laughs> trials can be faced with joy because infused with faith perseverance results and if perseverance goes full term it will develop a thoroughly mature Christian who lacks nothing y'all we s- sadly see so few of that anymore sadly our churches we're all we're so weak Americans are so weak and I, I and and I think a lot of it is ignorance to to God's word it's ignorance to the truth and things have been easy <laughs> things have been swimmingly easy here and if so we don't call I mean China where it's growing like leaps and bounds and they're you know persecuted and killed for following Christ and I mean it's just on and on and on and it's growing and growing it's like the church usually grows in persecution which is pretty amazing you get so fat and sassy and we just kind of sit and soak and sour, and we don't feel like we're called upon to do anything. He will indeed be all God wants him to be. James' argument may seem logical, but it is still difficult to see how trials can be welcomed with an attitude of joy because <clears throat> it's just not human nature. It's so unearthly in its, in its reaction. I mean... You know, it just is. And we are called to Canada joy when we fall into trials. Where does one turn for help to understand this difficult paradox? Paul tells us that tribulation worketh patience, and James affirms the same. By nature, we are inclined to be fretful and impatient. 
We want what we want when we want it. We don't want to wait a minute longer. Even Christians sometimes rebel against the ways of God when things go contrary to their own desires. We find ourselves fighting against God's best for our lives, and we don't want that. We don't want that. I mean, it's like you say, okay, Beth, you want to do your will or God's will, your will or God's will. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do God's will. He made me and created me and knows my inmost being and knows what's best for me and loves me with an everlasting love and died for me. I'm going to choose my will over his will when I'm ignorant and unlearned and don't know anything. But then I think, I want to just I keep fighting. I'm fighting against his best. It's like Paul, quick, when he told Paul, quit kicking against the goads, Paul. What I'm telling you is good. This is maybe not what you thought, but this is the way it is. This is the way it is. We find ourselves fighting against it. But he who learns to be submissive to whatever God permits glorifies God. And isn't that hard? Be submissive to whatever. Because I'm like... I'm sure most of y'all, I have, I have a plan, a schedule. I have a, okay, this is what I'm doing today. It is annoying when that doesn't work out. It's like, well, I haven't, then I think, I'm, I'm always thinking, because I never consider that I'm 100 years old, I think, I'll just stay up later and do it. You know, I'll just do it a little later. I'll get it all done. I'll get, you know, I'll like, you know, it's like, this, it's getting where that's harder and harder to, to do. But, I mean, when somebody comes in and, like, you have this plan and they say, okay, let's, let's see, or you get, you're on a roll and they, you, get, they get to, you get distracted or whatever it is. Every, every one of those things, how are you going to respond to those situations? That's how you bring Christ to your spheres, quite frankly. Like, can you help me? I, I've, I've lost my watch or my child or um, I need I, my tire is flat or you know you're you know somebody and you know, it's to a total stranger, okay, or whatever. I don't know what this situation is. How do you respond to every person that's in your sphere? Do you bring the room of Christ? And that's what it's about. I mean, but when we're antsy and you know and and focused and like. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> you know, it's about loving people, loving God, and loving people. But that's now what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> like, go straight, go straight. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Because you think, okay, if I do this and that, you know, but like God sees all of this. And it's like, okay, Lord, how am I supposed to respond in this situation? You know, that should be our undercurrent prayer. How do, how do you want me to respond to this? Anyway, um, but he learns to be submissive to whatever God permits, glorifies God who orders all things according to the counsel of his own will. And I means orders all things. All these little interruptions, all these things are ordered. How are you going to respond to that? You know, I get distracted. I mean, it's always time, like, pulling me away from the Lord or pulling me away, whatever. We are ultimately the losers when we don't readily embrace what he allows in our lives. And we rob ourselves of the higher good which God intended for us to have. We simply don't want to go there. It does us well to remember that we too all that all too often our trials prompt us to groan and complain. Ugh. And he says in Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing. Don't groan. What does it do? Don't be fretful and impatient. You know, don't worry, don't whine, blah, blah, blah. All the things that are so human nature and that come so easily to me. Um, that, that's usually the first response. Like, I could have done without that, Lord. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I got to, thank you, Lord. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, okay, whatever. Instead, you know, it's, and it 
can be this. Now, it, the older I get, I see that it can be just the most ridiculous things. I mean, like, like um, now we're parking outside. So something got clogged up, I don't know what, in my, on my windshield where it made all this water go to my back seat, which ended up costing about, about what the cars make to get it. Uh, the whole, it's all water. All the back of my car was just all water. And it's like, okay, Lord. But then there's this man that works at, at this place where I take it. This minute, all these doors open when you are on these kinds of things. Just, am I making any sense at all? That would normally not be in your sphere. How do you respond to this? You know, it's easy to be with your friends. It's easy to be with people that know the Lord. It's easy. And we get so in our holy huddles, and then we don't realize when we go out, there's all these needy people that don't know the Lord. And you may be their hope, as pitiful as I am. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, it, it, it makes you think bigger than your own little world. Did I get the bed made? Did I unload the dishwasher? Did I go to, tar- you know, whatever. You know what I mean? We get so consumed in this. Check, 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 check. I've done that. Okay, good day. You know. And oftentimes, it is just a smile. But you know, it's funny. I'll, say, I'll, be, I'll complain or whatever. My mom goes, okay, is your pity party over? Yeah, I know. You need to go outside. And there's somebody that's so much worse off than you. Amen. Just start walking down the street. Amen. <laughs> I mean, and I can it's tell really you, is. every single person in this world has some kind of troubles. I mean, they just do. We live in a broken, fallen world. And when we're really so isolated and by ourselves and living in our little bubbles, you know, we can think, oh, everybody else has it so much better. They're not having this hardship. They're not having this whatever that I'm going through. <clears throat> Sometimes, I mean, it's it, all the time. It's good. It's, you know, it's good just to be out. Love him and love others. Love God and love others. Um, and let your kids see you doing that. Amen. You know, like if you take five extra seconds to talk to the people who work at Little Caesars and ask them about their life, you know, your kids see that. If you're praying for them, your kids are seeing that and you're emulating how God wants you exactly. to show love. Exactly. Forever, I thought that my mission field was Cracker Barrel waitresses. Because we have <laughs> all the time. I'm not joking. I get Christmas cards. I get anniversary. I'm not joking. Uh, <laughs> and this is in Chattanooga. Oh, well. Cracker Barrel, yeah. And, I mean, you know. Everywhere you've lived. Well, we, we, we eat out. Like, you know, not fancy. We eat out all the time because I'm, you know, I don't know why, but that's what we've always done. So, there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, you get, I mean, I like, you know, you, I mean, you start hearing these stories. I'll tell you what's Cracker Barrel story. This one girl, I mean, this is amazing. She has nothing. Her husband left her. She's got three daughters. She has nothing. She works at Cracker Barrel as a waitress. What does she have that she can afford to give money to somebody at Dollar General to buy their groceries? But God urged her to, she's a Christian, we, you know, and yeah. so God urged her to buy these groceries. And and she goes, Lord, I mean, I have just 20 bucks, you know, whatever. Just, just do it, you know. So she does. She pays for this lady's groceries. And she doesn't even get what she came in there for. And then about uh, two days later, she comes home, and her whole front porch is covered with food. Because you cannot give out, out give God. But, y'all, this, they're ministering to me. They're ministering to me. Because she's living by faith a lot more than me. 
I mean, you know, it's crazy. But it's just story after story after story. I mean, I tell you, I mean, because we've lived in little towns, and there's just lots of stories. But that, but, but they're just like, wow, Lord. And that reminded me of the. I don't know if y'all have seen Little Women yet, and it probably most people didn't like the way it was shown because it was a whole flashback thing. But I cried in so much of it. But one one of the scenes was they. I hate people that tell stories about movies, but anyway, this is just a small one. <laughs> it won't give away anything. But she, but she, the mother of these little of the little girl, the women, <clears throat> um, was such a saint, and her husband was at war, and so she takes care of this woman who has no husband and baby's dying and there's all these kids no food nothing and it's christmas morning and they're all the girls the little women are so excited about getting their 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 breakfast or whatever and she goes she came home and she said now girls you know i just so-and-so doesn't have any food and they and they're cold and, and so can would y'all give your christmas to breakfast to them and they just kind of looked around, and then they all packed up their stuff. And it was, you know, it looked like these muffins, and a lot, a lot, but it was, it was things. And they took it to this house. And when they came home, the rich next door neighbor had seen them go and take that, and he had provided this banquet for them when they got home. And I thought, that is so you, Lord. That's what you do. You cannot outgive him. You can't outgive him. I mean, it, it turned. It's, it's not like a sacrifice. It becomes just a what do you want me to do next kind of thing instead of like do I have to I mean like with Jonah I look at that and all those people were saved and yet he was so mad because that vine had died and he was hot and thirsty I fall back into that a lot like wham 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 my needs aren't met like get over your silly self girl anyway I'm on the I don't know where I'm going now um Whining and complaining don't contribute to Christian maturity and do not bring about what God desires. They are inappropriate, inappropriate for the child of the king. The nattering demonstrates that we do not believe God has our best interest at heart, and believe me, it only makes matters worse. One who brings the right attitude to the trial, who understands the advantage of the trial, and who knows where to obtain assistance in the trial, will certainly end up with the shining favor of God. I mean, where, where are you the closest? You're at God's side whenever you're going through a child is sick, a, a, a financial setback, a whatever it is. There's just so many you, don't even, you can't even name them. What, what were you saying about assistance? Uh, you know, him. Go straight to him. Yeah. Go to him. And sometimes I was like, Lord, I cannot, I'm not, I can't. you got to keep pouring in until I can live my head. You know, just keep. You just stay there. And he does. He, he quiets your soul, and he fills you. He says in Hebrews, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of all the Hebrews 11, let us run with perseverance a race marked out for us. Not you run mine, or me run yours, or you run hers, or whatever. The race marked out for us. So there is a race, there is a plan, there is a purpose for your very life. And you want to find it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. It's like you were saying, run to him first in the morning. Run to him. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, Hear that little word joy? We're supposed to count it all joy. The joy set before him endured the cross. Why did he have that joy to endure? How did he have that joy to endure? That joy was what he was going, that cross was bringing about, bringing many men to glory. 
That was the joy. He set his focus on that, what this trial was bringing about. That's what we need to do. What is this trial bringing about? And you trust it to the bottom of your core that it is bringing about good for you and your family and every single person that it involves in, even though it seems devastatingly horrible and bad, just like that instincts my soul. How many people, how many people have gotten blessed from, from, from it is well with my soul? How many people? Do you think that was born out of, oh, daisies in the land? No. It was born out of pain. It was born out of pain. Um, one who brings the right attitude to the trial, who understands the advantage of the trial, and who knows where to obtain assistance from Jesus in the trial, will certainly end up with the shining favor of God. As Hebrews says, he says, and Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet shed, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. You are a child of the king. You're a child of the king. He who learns to be submissive to whatever God permits glorifies God who orders all things according to the counsel of his own will. God is not one drop happenstance or chance. Not a drop. It's a, it, he, he makes known the end from the beginning. From ancient times which yet to come, he says, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. And he says in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. King David had the right approach when he faced with circumstances beyond his ability to endure, just like Paul had, just like some we have. And God quieted his soul as one does a child. This is a patient, patience exemplified in David. David says, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. David was always not perfect, but always quick to run to the throne. Always quick to run to the throne. And just like you were saying, first, what can man do? What can man do? The order in trials is first turned to God in prayer. Bring your complaint before him in all honesty of heart. He can take your hurt. He knows it hurts. He knows you. He made you. Pray boldly, claiming his promises. Finally, choose to trust his will. Nevertheless, Lord, that's what Jesus did. This is exactly the, the strategy he did in Gethsemane. You know, he's sweating drops of blood. His was harder than anything we'll ever walk through. I mean, on steroids. You know, it's like, if it's possible, he says. And he knew. He knew. He knew it was. He knew. But if it's possible, Lord, God, if it's possible, take it away. Take this cup away, the cup of redemption. But nevertheless, not what I'm saying in this flesh part, this weakness. Nevertheless, your will be done. Choose to trust his will for your life. Choose to. And y'all, sometimes we don't see. We don't see what happens. He's, he's not, we're not guaranteed the sight of, of the good. You know, we're not guaranteed that. He doesn't say, look for my good? No, we're not guaranteed what we have done. Through, he's done through us. We'll see the results. 
You know what I'm saying? Like some people don't see the results. Like I guarantee you, Horatio Spafford didn't see the results of his song. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. The eventual results that would come out of it. I mean, Jonah was able to, and he did still complain. <laughs> but, but, but exactly. But, but oftentimes we are not. We don't see the benefit that has that has occurred from what has gone down, transpired by our obedience or whatever. And I think that is because, praise the Lord, he knows how prone to pride we are. He just knows how prone to pride we are. He can use a rock. He can use a donkey, and he has. He doesn't need us to do his will. He doesn't need it. But I think he does show it to us when he knows we need it. Yes, he does. He encourages his saints. But I'm just saying, you know, a lot of sometimes you don't. Exactly. Right. Okay. Um, God is God, Elizabeth Elliot says, because he is God. He is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will, a will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Elizabeth Elliot, y'all probably know, was Jim Elliot's wife. That was her first husband, and he was uh, there. Were four uh, missionary, young missionary families that went down to these tribes. I don't know, Indians or whatever. And all four of the men were killed, and all these women had little babies. And um, she, I mean, she's now dead. This has happened a long time ago. So subsequently, out of that tragedy, she went back down there to minister to those. Uh, Indians too, and I think I can't remember the story, so I'll mess it up. But it, it was it was pretty amazing. But anyway, it's not like she had a, a pain-free life. I guess that's what I'm trying to to tell you. So, to me, I listen to people that have walked through. You know, I give more credence in, in my hearing to people that have actually walked the path rather than just espouse what they think they know to be true or whatever. Like sometimes you want proof in in the walk. But anyway, the difference is, she says, Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. That's hard. The difference is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And then to will <coughs> what God wills brings peace to the soul. You know, this, this constant friction or fighting. Do your best to empty yourself every day. <laughs> You know, it's like pour out your life like a drink offering and like, okay, Lord, I want what you want. To those who feel confused and frustrated by the high goal of not lacking anything through trials and tribulations, James wrote, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Assistance is readily available from our giving God. To those who lack wisdom, this incredibly valuable resource is available for the asking. James assumed his readers would feel the deep need for wisdom not just knowledge. God will not only provide wisdom, but will do so generously and not grudgingly. Spurgeon writes in morning and evening, he takes it from Numbers 11 11. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Our Heavenly Father sends us frequent troubles to test our faith. <clears throat> if our faith is worth anything, it will stand the test. Guilt is afraid of fire. I love that. 
Guilt is, gold is not. Guilt is afraid of fire. The pastrum is afraid of fire. A fake faith is afraid of fire. Gold is not. The pastrum dreads to be touched by the diamond, but the true jewel fears no test. It is a poor faith which can only trust God when friends are true, body full of health, and the business profitable. But that is true faith which holds by the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, when the body is sick, and the spirits are depressed, and the light of our Father's countenance is hidden. I'm thinking about Johnny Erickson. She talks about how she can retain, regain joy each day. How did she say it? It was like she sinks to the Lord so, so that when she her husband leaves and she has an hour where she can't do a thing, she can't move, before the lady comes to dress her and, and do everything for her that we take so for granted. <coughs> but she prays, uses that hour to pray and get her heart right in the songs and sings to herself so that when she... She, the helper comes in, she has this smile of Jesus. And, she, and, the, and the helper asks her one day, how can you be so happy? She goes, that's not me. Mm-hmm. That's just Jesus in me, smiling. And it's real. And it's real. It's not fake. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's real. Exactly. A faith which can say in the direst trouble, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, that was Job, is heaven born. The Lord afflicts his servants to glorify himself, but never one surpassing the other of our good in his glory. For he is greatly glorified in the graces of his people, which are his handiwork. When tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope, the Lord is honored by these growing virtues. We would never know how the music of the harp sounds if the strings were left untouched nor enjoy the juice of the grapes if it weren't trampled by the wine press, nor discover the sweet perfume of cinnamon if it weren't pressed and beaten, nor feel the warmth of fire if the coals were not utterly consumed. The wisdom and power of the great workman, capital W, are discovered by the trials through which his vessels of mercy are permitted to pass. Present afflictions tend also to heighten future joy. There must be shades in the picture to bring out the beauty of the lights. Could we be so supremely blessed in heaven if we hadn't known the curse of sin and the sorrow of earth? Won't peace be sweeter after conflict and rest more welcome after toil? Won't the recollection of past sufferings enhance the bliss of the glorified? There are many other comfortable answers to the question with which we opened our brief meditation. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Let's think about that all day long. Why, Lord, why am I in this situation? What do you want? How am I supposed to behave? We'll earnestly seek what he wants from you. Earnestly seek it. He says, As we grow in this grace of patience until there's no longer any rebellion against the will of God, a strong Christian character is developed. I don't know of any other way that he develops character. We become mature and whole, no longer craving for what God sees fit to withhold. This is true victory. To achieve it requires godly wisdom that God is waiting to bestow in answer to your prayers. This brings a settled peace that passes all human understanding. That's why people can hold it together, it seems like, when all the world... I remember this way. I don't know if y'all have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, but, I mean, I got it, maybe. 
10 pages in it. I mean, it's just so overwhelmingly hard. And this is 100 years ago, but I remember this one story, and I will never forget it. This woman would not quit talking about the Lord. And they kept saying, you're going to burn in the fire, you're going to burn in the fire. She had two little babies. And she would not quit talking about the Lord. And they screwed her mouth together. I mean, people, it is the most inhumane thing what people have done in the past in the world. I mean, and she had these screws together, and she had these two little boys, and they're sitting there, and they, they, they watch as her mama is, their mama is being burned to the stake because she wouldn't quit talking about Jesus. And after she was burned up, they went and they raked through the coals to find the screws. And it's like, I mean, literally, this has been 25 years ago, or no, 40 years ago. I can't remember how long it's been since I read that. But it was such a picture in my mind. I thought, Lord, how brave. I could do that. I couldn't do that. But we don't have, we don't have the grace to meet a need we don't have now. And a lot of times we worry about things like, I couldn't do that. You're given the grace sufficient to meet the need when you need it. God is not a grace waster. He doesn't bestow, okay, all this grace and is not you. You know what I'm saying? But if you are called, you are given that grace sufficient to meet that need. You can be assured of that, that you won't flee. Or I mean, like all these people that you see, and I think, you know, Lord, how could I? It's a, it's, it's, it doesn't take away the pain or the or the hurt, but it causes you to be able to stand. Stand. This brings us in it, and it it brings a settled peace that passes all understanding. What comes out of it? It is the beauty from the ash, and that's what he's all about doing: taking our ashes and making beauty. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, given to you. I do not give as the world gives. My peace is not like the world. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not let them be afraid. James also tells us, I love, I mean, you know what, y'all, what saved my scrawny neck so much is scripture memory. And, and so many things, you know, memorize things that shows you the power of God. Memorize things that shows you the love of God. You know, it comes back, Lord, you said, Lord, you said, Lord, you said. Prom- claim his promises in Scripture. He loves that. Lord, you have said. Lord, you have said. Lord, you have said. Show me what this is. How does the flesh out? James also tells us that we lack, that we lack uh, wisdom. We need only to ask in faith, believing that God will give it liberally to all those who ask, believing and not wavering. A double-minded man is never sure of anything. He's unstable, meaning he has no constancy of purpose, vacillating in his beliefs, and not firmly rooted or anchored and unsteady. We don't want to go there. Changeableness is an evidence of an unsubdued will, and generally, too, of an inflated ego, which leads us, one, to be preoccupied unduly with the importance of his own affairs. I mean, that's, that's how we get in our world today. It's undue importance of our own affairs. We all lack wisdom. We all see so unclearly. The, those with humility fully realize this lack. They don't think they know it all. They don't think they have all the answers. Knowing our need is the first step toward receiving that which will meet our need. 
Loveliness of mind is truly becoming in those who profess to follow him who said, I am gentle and humble in heart. If he gives promotion, one can rejoice in his goodness, recognizing it all as pure grace. But if he permits conditions to change so that he who is well-to-do finds himself in comparative poverty, let him accept all from his hand who makes no mistakes. Man, after all, is but grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Or with the breadth of his hands marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or, the hill, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings before him. Before him. I just don't know why I'm saying all this. All the nations are as nothing. They regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then we compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman that will to make him an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princesses to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. Then he blows on them, and they wither in the world and sweeps them away like chaff. To whom, then, will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host, one by one, and calls them each by name, because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Israel, and complain, O, why do you say, o Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and not be faint. Oh, he who has ears, let him hear that truth. It is so true. He is above all, above, beyond all, everything. He is so far above what we can imagine. And he loves us with an everlasting love. Go figure that. Father, 
Um, I don't know where I am in this lesson, but I'm over. <laughs> so I ask that you guard us and guide us and help us to know your love for us, your power, Lord, that we don't serve a, a, a God that's just a, in name only, Lord. Your power and your, and your love and your, and your faithfulness and all the things that you just so readily want to build in us. But, Lord, these are hard to build, I know because you fight against our resistance of our flesh. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to embrace what you allow with joy, that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, that you, O oh Lord, through your power, would give us great endurance and patience, and that we would stand firm in all your will, mature and fully assured, that we would be the aroma of Jesus to every encounter we have this week. Father, I love you. I, I love you, and I thank you. And I ask that you would just be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name, Mommy. Well, that could surely take away any of my excuses to do his will. <laughs> 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 You're <laughs>